Thanks to all of you. Before we consider today's scripture reading and today's message, I want to say words of gratitude for our music ministry for leading us in worship. Thank you so much to our hospitality team, to the folks who are in discipleship ministry with kids and youth and adults all throughout the church, to the folks who are connecting us online here at Fifth Street uh, or anywhere in the world right now. God bless you. I'm so glad you're a part of our worshiping community. My name is Lance Marshall. I'm the senior pastor here at the First United Methodist Church of Fort Worth, and uh, I did hold back one announcement today from our morning announcements because I wanted to get to share it. And if you pay attention to our emails that come out on Fridays, we have a regular weekly email that keeps you updated on things that are happening in the life of the church. And we had a special announcement in this Friday's email. We have some good news in that next week we are going to be receiving the appointment of a new pastor to join the staff here at the First United Methodist Church of Fort Worth. We'll have a new associate pastor. His name is Samuel Macias. Uh, Samuel has been in ministry in the city of Fort Worth for five years. He previously pastored La Trinidad United Methodist Church on the north side, which is a primarily English-speaking congregation. He also pastored El Buen Samaritano in Polytechnic Heights, which was a primarily bilingual, con bilingual congregation. And then I say was to both of those congregations because Samuel actually helped those churches merge together with Faith United Methodist Church on the east side on Belknap Street to form New Riverside Church, uh, which is a church that's going very well. And so he helped that congregate, those congregations form into a new congregation. He's been at Templo El Camino in Reynosa, Mexico for the past few years, but he's on his way up here to Fort Worth. And sometimes when you have a new staff member come, it's because you have a perfect job and job description already all planned out and you need to find someone to fit that role. And so you go find a person. And sometimes it's the exact opposite situation. You have a chance to invite someone onto your staff who has gifts and graces and abilities and perspective that you don't currently have and so you jump on the opportunity to have them join you and then you together explore the gifts and what God is calling us into to find out what's coming next and that's the situation that we have with Samuel. I'm so excited. He goes by Sam. Um, he and his family are driving up and they will be uh, landing in Fort, in Fort Worth later on this week, but it's going to take him a little bit of time to get settled and everything, so it might be just a bit before you meet him, but he's not coming alone. He's coming with his wife, Sabby, and their three daughters who are high school and college age, Sophia, Sabby, and Samantha, and their dog, Sandy. And you'll notice I had to read to make sure I got it all right, because it's Sabby, Samuel, Sophia, Sabby, Samantha, and Sandy. And so we welcome all of them to the city of Fort Worth. I can't wait to spend time together. I can't wait for you all to get a chance to meet the Messias family. Uh, buen viaje to the family, and we can't wait to see you here at First Church when you land. Thrilled about what God is going to be doing through the Messias family and through the ministry of our church here. So that being said, we do have a scripture that's in front of us. Uh, Mark, you gotta, you gotta appreciate the work of a children's minister who's gonna do a children's moment, and the scripture is David and Bathsheba. That's, that's a high mountain to climb, and I appreciate, I appreciate Mark for never backing down from a challenge. So uh, I want to share that scripture, and as I was reading through that scripture and praying about it over the course of this week, a lesson that I learned in college keeps coming to mind. I've shared that I was a communication studies major in college, and I didn't really mean to be one. I just started taking classes that interested me. There was a rhetoric of the American presidency class that I loved, and there was a uh, speech disorders communication that I took and I really appreciated. There was a, a multicultural communication class that I took, and, and classes along these lines. And after a couple years, the advisor goes, okay, that's a major in communication studies. It's time for you to leave now. <laughs> and I went, okay, I guess I majored in communication studies. 
And there's a lesson that really sticks with me that I learned that was a key element through all of those different classes. It applies to my life today. I think about it all the time. And it has to do with what we think communication is. So often we think of, think of communicating as what I say or what I write or what I post on social media, etc. That's what communication is, right? I'm communicating. One of the things my studies help me realize is that communication is actually a much larger spectrum. It's not just the moment of you speaking or writing, but it's a whole spectrum. And the spectrum actually begins here with what it is that you want to say or do or accomplish, what it is that you're feeling, what it is that's motivating you to communicate. Then the next step are the words that you actually say or that you actually write or post. That's an entirely separate step from what's motivating you to begin the work of communication. Then you say or write or post whatever it is that you do. And then the next step of communication is whatever the person who heard you or read what you wrote or listened to you. The next step of communication is whatever they thought it is that you said or wrote or posted. Does that make sense? There's what you said or wrote or posted and then there's what you thought, they thought you said or wrote or posted. And then the last step is how that made them feel. What that did in and for them when they received that communication. Does that make sense? It's an entire spectrum. It's not just the words that you say or write or post. It's the motivation, the impetus behind them. It's the words that you choose, the form that it takes. It's what people think that they've received or heard. And finally, it's the impact that it made on their life. And it's an entire spectrum of communication. And I was thinking about that a lot when I was reflecting on what it's like to be a reader and a listener, someone who's on social media, who's participating in the world over the course of these past few decades. And I'll have to tell you, I love reading about politics. I love reading and hearing and talking about the world. I love hearing people's reflection on Christian ethics and these major issues of our time. I love all of those things in general. But in practice sometimes, those conversations can be so difficult, am I right? Or so challenging, or so disruptive, or so divisive. And it's not inherent to the conversation that we're having. Of course, talking about important issues is going to impact us, us, but there's nothing inherent about talking about politics. This is going to make us feel this way, or about religion, or ethics, or things along those lines. There's a character and a characteristic behind so much of the language today that was resulting in me feeling ultimately disinterested, disengaged, desiring to retreat, etc. And there's a word that I think describes so much of the language we experience today from well-meaning and good people, from people who have decent opinions. We may agree or disagree, but at least they're thoughtful or well-considered. And I wouldn't use the word divisive or I wouldn't use the word um, disruptive. This is the word that I think really applies. And if we're going to use definitions, we might as well go all the way and put in and put in the different uh, syllable markers. That word is sanctimonious. Y'all know the word sanctimonious? Man, that is a word that just describes a lot of the communication that's taking place in the world right now. Is it not? For those of you who are unfamiliar with the definition, sanctimonious is not about being right or about being wrong. It's about making a show or a display of being morally superior to somebody else. At its heart, 
conversation or communication that it's sanctimonious begins with the place of, I need you to know that I think whatever you're doing or is happening, etc., is wrong. The very beginning of the communication is, it starts with me, and I need you to know that I think it's wrong. I am morally superior to that. It's the definition of sanctimonious. Okay, well, if that's sanctimonious language, is there any alternative? And what might it look like? That's what I want to talk about today. We're in a sermon series right now titled Crossroads because it's stories of these key figures in faith, these key figures from the Hebrew Bible that are at these inflection points. They're at these moments where they have a choice, they have a chance to make a choice. We started with Joshua who's speaking to the people of Israel who are now settled in the Holy Land who have to make a choice. What kind of people are we going to be? And whom are we going to serve? Because they know the God of Israel and God's faithfulness, but they are also facing this constant pull to worship the idols in the surrounding communities. And so it's ultimately this call, who will you be? It's a crossroads moment, an inflection point. Last week, we heard the story of young David, young David the shepherd, who's at this crossroads moment and confronts Goliath not only with the truth of his knowledge of how it is that he's been prepared for this moment, but also trusting in the reality that God is a promise-making and promise-keeping God. That he's seen God work in and through him and his people before, and he knows that he can trust God in this moment. It's a highlight moment for the story of David. But David's story doesn't end there. David's narrative keeps going, and if you study the story of David, you realize that not much more of his story can actually be read as prescriptive, meaning do like David does. In fact, he becomes a cautionary tale. What's happened over the course of years to come is that David has led armies in victory. He's overcome his predecessor. He's defeated cities. He's routed foreign people, and he's now king. Historically, this is looked at as being the high point of the kingdom of Israel. The kingdom of Israel and Judah are united together. This is their high moment of wealth and power and prestige in the area. But in the midst of all of this, David is beginning to rot morally. It's changing him. Back before there was ever a king in Israel, the people of Israel were lifting up to the prophet Samuel that they wanted a king. They wanted a king. And speaking on behalf of God, Samuel pointed out to them, kings are takers. Kings ultimately will take from you and the people, your sons, your daughters, your wealth, your resources. You don't need a king. You just need God. And the people said, give us a king like our neighbors. That prophecy is coming true in the life of David. He used to fight with his armies. He doesn't anymore. He has an army that's off doing battle on his behalf while he stays home safe and comfortable in Jerusalem. He goes up to the rooftop of his home and he sees elsewhere in the city a young woman who is bathing and he desires her. His desire needs to be pointed out and I'm going to have to do some PG language here. So I need you guys to read, you know, in between. There's little ears here. Y'all read between the lines with me. He's got six wives. So the desires that he have can be met if it's just about that, but he desires in ways that have much more to do with power and control. 
So he sends out emissaries on his behalf to ask, who is this person? They come back and tell him Bathsheba is her name. She's the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Uriah the Hittite is one of David's key soldiers and leaders. It's one of the people on whom David is relying to do battle on his behalf while David stays home safe and secure and comfortable. And she's his wife. She does not have children. It means she's probably very young. We're talking a teenager here. And David sends the people who follow his orders and are an extension of his power to get her and bring her back. And he has relations with her. And you need to understand that in this situation, she does not have the power to say no. And there's a word for that. And that's what he does. She communicates back a short time later that she's now pregnant. This is a problem for David. Because if the source of her pregnancy becomes available and known to everybody, it will bring shame on him and threaten his rule. So he comes up with a plan to cover his tracks. He has Uriah, the Hittite, her husband, brought home from battle. And he says, Uriah, go home to your family, go home to your house, and enjoy the comforts therein. Hoping that that could help hide the source of Bathsheba's pregnancy. But Uriah doesn't. It's against the conventions of what it is to be a good soldier in their culture. He can't go be at home and comfortable while his fellow soldiers are often fighting, and so he doesn't. This frustrates David, so he has a plan B. He has a dinner with Uriah. David stays sober during the entire dinner, but he does everything he can to get Uriah drunk. And when Uriah is, he says, now go home to your wife. And Uriah won't. Even in the midst of being inebriated, he holds strong to those convictions of who he is and what is and is not acceptable for him as a soldier and as a leader. And the story tells us he actually stays there in the cot at David's palace, surrounded by David's servants, each and every one of them who knows what's actually going on in this situation. David can't get Uriah to cover up his tracks, and so he sends Uriah back to the battlefield, and he makes Uriah carry his own death warrant. Uriah carries a sealed envelope and gives it to his commander, just like David told him to, and the envelope says, when they go out to fight, send Uriah out to the first and the worst of the fighting, and then have everybody pull back from him so that he's killed. And that's exactly what happens. David commits a murder with the weapons of foreign adversaries as his murder weapon, and he does so to cover up his own adultery and greed and covetousness and assault, and he gets away with it all, except in the eyes of God. Nathan is a prophet, a person through whom God speaks. A person through whom God communicates God's word to God's world. And God needs David to know. God needs the leader of God's people to know. God needs David, a person who has had everything handed to him, needs him to know that what he has done has consequence. And so he sends Nathan, a prophet, with a word. Imagine the crossroads that Nathan is at at this moment. Imagine how hard it is to speak truth to someone who's on an equal footing with you. How much harder yet is it to speak truth to a king? A king who has now proven that he's willing to take and debase, that he's guilty of lying and adultery and stealing and covetousness and murder on top of it all. How do you speak in that moment? And what can you say to this person? 
But the key thing to know is that the word from Nathan doesn't come from Nathan's own conscience, and it isn't out of a desire for Nathan to know that David, <clears throat> this gets confusing, Nathan doesn't just need David to know that Nathan thinks it's bad. The source of Nathan's word comes from God. And Nathan has a word to share. And he shares the story of a rich man who has so much and a poor man who has so little. And when it comes time to provide or to satisfy needs, the rich man thinks nothing of taking everything from someone who has so much less. In the midst of this story, Nathan points out what it is to take, what it is to covet, what it is to abhor, what it is to violate covenant and promises and the basic tenets of goodness. And he lays open the truth in which David can find himself. What Nathan gives is the opposite of sanctimonious language. How easy would it have been for a prophet, a holy person, a set-apart person to go to someone like David and say, you are terrible, you are wrong, you have defiled yourself and your station and the God whom you proclaim to serve. And every one of those things would have been right, but the purpose of that speech would have been for Nathan to proclaim himself superior to David. And instead, Nathan speaks in a different way. He's not sanctimonious. He's sanctified. Sanctified. To sanctify something means to set it apart, to declare it as holy, to make it consecrated, to free something from sin, and to purify it. That's what to sanctify means. And there's sanctimonious speech, and there's sanctified speech. As Christians of the United Methodist Persuasion, one of the things that we celebrate and take seriously is the fact that the sanctifying grace, the purifying and freeing and holy making and consecrating grace of Christ is at work in our lives every single day. That's what our worship and our prayer and our giving and our service and our learning and our playing does in our lives. It helps us experience that purifying and sanctifying grace. And it's from the source of that sanctifying grace that Nathan speaks to David in a way that isn't for the purposes of shaming or controlling him, but instead giving him a chance for earnest repentance and to actually change his life and his ways. Because the truth is, David is rotting from the inside out and only a word like this has hopes of saving him. That's the difference between sanctimonious and sanctified. I've been thinking all week long about the difference between sanctimonious and sanctified speech. And what I've come up with more than anything else is that it starts right here. That first phase, that why am I speaking and what am I saying the heart of sanctimonious speech, and it lives in each and every one of us, is I need you to know how right I am about this and how wrong you are. And so the words I say and the things I write and the tweets I tweet and the posts I post are so ultimately you can understand how right I am. And when people receive that, well, they don't, do they? What it creates is anger and fear and a hardening of hearts and resentment and it ultimately leads to us being farther apart than we've ever been before. That's what sanctimonious speech does. And it can be about politics and it can be about religion and it can be about college football. It doesn't matter. That's the impact of sanctimonious speech. Sanctified speech starts with the Spirit. It starts with the work of God. 
It starts with the good news of Christ. And the words that are spoken are spoken so that they might open eyes and draw people into a better reality and a better world. And when people hear it, they may feel challenged. They may feel confronted. They may feel like scales are falling from their eyes or the weight of the world is in front of their feet. And those things are not always good. But the result of sanctified speech, the impact of sanctified speech can be and often is a heart changed and a path towards repentance and forgiveness and restoration. Sanctimonious speech can never and will never do it, but sanctified speech can. What I was thinking about over the course of this week was how much I yearn for sanctified speech, for how much I'm grateful for the people who've spoken sanctified words into my life. Because the truth is, as much as we silence ourselves in prayer and open our help to the moving of the Spirit in our times of quiet and solitude, just as often, if not more, God speaks to us through the words of God's people into our life. Amen? God speaks the good news that we need to hear and the truth that we need to hear and the promises that we need to hear through the mouths of other people. That's one of the ways in which God works. And one of the things that's incumbent upon us in this world is learning to separate the sanctimonious from the sanctified. And if someone's speaking to you in sanctimonious language, and with sanctimonious purposes, it doesn't matter what they're saying or in what form, you can let that roll off your back and sit behind you. But a sanctified word, a word that originates in God and God's purposes, a word that comes when it's heart at God's goodness, is a word to be taken seriously. It's a source of a blessing. It's a source of hope, and it's a source of good news to you, even if it calls out something hard to hear. And at the same time, just as God uses other people to speak a sanctified word to you, guess what? God's going to use you to do the same for others. So my question is, when you feel the stirring of the Spirit, when you feel the calling of the Lord, when you feel like it's time to say something because it's time to say something, make sure that the origination of that isn't this desire that other people know how good you are. Rather, for them to know how good God is. And when you proclaim this word, when you say this thing, when you post this post, when you write this article... Make sure that the word proclaim is not about you. It's not even about them. It's about the good news of God's good world. And not to shame or to blame or to hurt or to separate, but that word invites them to find their place in it. Because the next step for them in response is repentance, is to seek forgiveness, is to make a change and a new step forward. There's so much of this story, David and Bathsheba, power, sin, regret, violation, hope, suffering, endurance. What I lift up today is the reality between sanctimonious and sanctified. And when we listen and when we speak, may we be people of a sanctified word now and every day. Let us pray. Great and loving God, great are you and greatly to be praised. 
Today, we praise you for your sanctifying grace, your purifying grace, your grace that roots out sin and pride and anger and greed from our own lives, allows us to take small steps in faithfulness toward you every day. Lord, we're hungry for your sanctified word spoken to us through other people, and when the time is right, we ask to be your vessels for that good news spoken into the lives of others. Guide us, keep us, shape us in the image of your son, Jesus. And it's in his name that we trust and that together we pray the words that he taught us to pray, saying, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. right now in the life of the church over the months of November and December is that the budget and finance committees of our church will be taking into account the mission that God has given our, the body of Christ, our church, as discerned through our leaders and our church council, and they'll be marrying those up against the resources that the church has for ministry, the financial gifts to plan the budgets for the upcoming year in ministry. And before that can happen, we're going through a season called stewardship season. It's where we respond as a church individually and as families and reflect on the ways in which we have been blessed and are in return supporting the ministries of the church through our financial offerings. And one of the things that I love to do is highlight real families who are making these discernments alongside the rest of us. And I've asked Dave and Charlene Ernst to come forward. Would you warm up the room for me, please? And thank them for coming forward. If y'all will face out so everyone can see you, would you introduce yourself, Dave and Charlene? Who are y'all? I'm Charlene Ernst. Uh, been so let's point that right at your mouth. I've been a member here about 12 years, having come in from another Methodist church in an outlying area. Um, that's the beginnings of me. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm Dave Ernst. Uh, obviously, I've also been here at the same amount of time we came together. And y'all are involved in some in different ways here. What are some of the ways you're involved in life at the church? We are both part of the uh, congregational care uh, ministry team that go visits homebound, uh, shut-ins, uh, just to give them comfort if they have something they need doing. We try to help them out if we can. Uh, we have, I take part in, uh, I guess you'd call it a gardening ministry uh, under the leadership of Barbara Duckworth and uh, just various Bible studies and study groups and the members of the loyalty class. Yeah, absolutely. Well, she, she mentioned it. I was about to say that we are members of the loyalty class. 
and thank you for covering it. You know, one of the things I see you doing a lot as congregational care ministers is being ushers at funerals, <laughs> too. That's a really important ministry, yes. and I thank you for doing that, volunteering and coming up and make sure people experiencing funerals have warm hospitality and are greeted. So those are ways you're involved in life at the church, but what else do you have going on in life? Well, we live at Trinity Terrace, senior living community just down the road, and we participate in uh, some activities there. Um, a lot of you know that Dave was a graduate of uh, UT Austin, so we've done a lot of sporting of, of the school, and uh, used to be season ticket holders for football, but not anymore. But we also support uh, aerospace engineering students. Awesome, so, that's wonderful. Uh, so you have passions and interests. Yeah. You support students, you support schools, you have things that you're engaged in outside the life of the church, and yet you still decide to live sacrificially so that you can live generously and support the ministries of the church. Why is that? Well, we feel like that's what we've been called to do in a way. So, and it's something we want to do. Anything else? Well, basically we do that because that is what we should do. Yeah. Why do you feel called to do it? Why is it something that you want to do? I, I for one, am very impressed with the... Uh, please say preaching, please say preaching, please say preaching. <laughs> with the preaching. <laughs> and not well, the music. <clears throat> But when we uh, first joined, I became impressed with the work that is done outside the church by the church. Uh, I'm thinking in terms of the First Street uh, First Street Methodist Mission. Mission. Yeah. Yes, that's the word. The Justice Ministry. Yeah. There are a great many things going on here that very much need support and deserve support. Amen. On behalf of the whole church, thank you all for your support. Thank you for your willingness to come up and share. I appreciate that. Y'all can have a seat. Thank you all so much. I really appreciate the stories of individuals sharing on their reflection. You know, at the 930 service, we had a woman who's in her mid-20s who's made a commitment to live sacrificially so that she can live generously and support the life of the church. And these stories are all throughout our community. So as you see the Created for a Purpose uh, pledge cards that are available in the pew backs in front of you. They're online. I ask you to prayerfully consider how it is that you've been blessed and how it is that you feel called to support the ministries of the church in the coming year. As I invite our ushers to come forward to receive today's tithes and offerings, I want to remind you that gifts and offerings can be given in the plate physically or also online uh, here or anywhere at fumcfw.org slash give now. And one of the things I'm thinking about today was last Sunday when we had uh, our pastries with the pastors joining event. We had had six adult confirmations of faith that took place. That means six adults for the first time in their life ever made forward and made a statement of faith and a commitment to follow Christ with who they are and with their whole lives. And I'm just so thankful that a church like you continues to support all the ministries that can lead people up not only to that moment, but into a rich life of continuing to grow as a disciple. That's the difference that your gifts make now and every day. Would you please join me in prayer? Great and loving God, please bless these gifts and those who give them. Please use them for the strengthening of the body of Christ, your church, and the coming of your kingdom. And it's in Christ's name that we pray and say, amen. <laughs>